Hi everyone, welcome to Oscar Wild, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rokraut. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And we are back with another episode all about one of our favorite actresses, Toni Collette. I'm so excited to talk about her today. We love Oscar-nominated actresses, and Toni Collette is one of our favorites. So what we'll be doing today is we will be talking about why we love her so much and dive in specifically to two of her films, the first one being The Sixth Sense, where she received an Oscar nomination, and the second being Hereditary, where she did not receive an Oscar nomination. Starting off, I 100% believe these should be switched. Why shouldn't she have both? Okay, well, I mean, if we're giving her all the nominations, there's a lot more that she should have. Yeah. (laughs) I would have given it to her over Hereditary, but we'll go into both films, what we love about them, and specifically her. A little background about Toni Collette. Thinking of her awards, she's been nominated for two BAFTAs, one for About a Boy and one for Little Miss Sunshine. She won an Emmy for Lead Actress in a Comedy Series for The United States of Terra. She was also nominated for a Tony for The Wild Party, and she has been nominated for one Oscar, Best Supporting Actress, in 2000 for The Sixth Sense. To start out, why do you love Toni Collette? She's in so many movies. I think I love that she's such a versatile actress. Just in the past few years, she went from being a hippie in Knives Out to a detective in the series Unbelievable on Netflix, and then... She's a neurotic mother in I'm Thinking of Ending Things. And then she's like this happy horse mom in Dream Horse. So we have gotten absolutely everything from her. And I don't think I realized until like embarrassingly recent that she was Australian. Like she's just so good at accents. And I think that adds to why I love her so much. It seems like she can just really easily navigate all these different types of emotions. She's so far from one dimensional. She has such an expressive face where she conveys emotions so easily. And we will get to that, I think, specifically with a couple of scenes in Hereditary. But I love this story about how when she was 11, she faked appendicitis so convincingly that her doctor almost took out her appendix. What are you trying to get out of by faking appendicitis? Probably to get out of school. (laughs) I mean, that was probably it, and then it just went too far. The fact that she hasn't won an Oscar yet is crazy because the thing that I think when I think of Toni Collette is how successful she is at the transformation, which, as we know, is something that the Academy supposedly really loves. And I know I've mentioned this on the pod before briefly, but the fact that her second movie was Muriel's Mm -hmm. Wedding and it just still holds up it's still so funny and fresh and we've gotten just so much from her since then almost 30 years ago she's had such a great career and I love that she's willing to take parts that are lead roles that are supporting roles she will be in big blockbusters or she'll be in indies she really doesn't discriminate she just wants strong roles no matter what the size is so I really Mm -hmm. like that about her too and I think she has a really similar skill set to Meryl but she just hasn't had the acclaim from the Academy I hope that one day she'll get nominated for more even though I don't really think she cares and I think that's why she's great too like she does what she wants Mm -hmm. she's got like a little bit of Frances McDormand in her and doesn't worry about 
the aftermath of all the press and awards. And then another recommendation that I know we have mentioned before, if you love Tony Collette, definitely check out this interview from the A24 podcast. It's called True Obsession with John Early and Tony Collette. And he just loves her so much and he interviews her. And it's such a delight if you love Tony Collette and want to learn more about her. I think I listened to this before I watched Search Party and knew really who John Early was. So now that he has such a bigger personality in that show, at least, I really want to go back and listen to this again. Me too. So let's get started with The Sixth Sense. It was released in August 1999. It had a $40 million budget and made over $672 million worldwide. It was the second highest grossing film of 1999 behind Star Wars The Phantom Menace. And it was also the top video rental of all time. Those are crazy stats. Yeah, this movie was a phenomenon, and it inspired several movies after with twists, and I think it's the reason why twists are kind of needed in certain types of movies now, so we'll get into that and what that means, Mm -hmm. but before we do a description and everything, we will be talking about spoilers here. If you have not seen this movie, I would not listen to this part unless you want it spoiled and want to go back and figure it out. I think that's fine. You've been warned. We will be diving into spoilers for both this movie and Hereditary. So description here, a boy who communicates with spirits seeks the help of a disheartened child psychologist. It was directed by M. Night Shyamalan, stars Bruce Willis, Hilly Joel Osment, Tony Collette, and Misha Barton. And Olivia Williams, who plays the (laughs) other Olivia Coleman in The Father. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was like, where is she from? That's it. <laughs> it was nominated for six Oscars for Picture, Director, Supporting Actor, and Supporting Actress, Original Screenplay, and Film Editing. What are your general thoughts on The Sixth Sense? I, like most critics and the general public, really like this movie. I think it's very successful in what it's trying to do and has a lot more emotion in it than most movies nowadays with twists that feel very cold. It's definitely M. Night Shyamalan's best movie. We can maybe talk about his filmography, which I'm not very hot on. I didn't see it right when it came out, but I did see it before I knew there was a twist at all. So I didn't go into this movie looking for a twist. I just enjoyed it Mm -hmm. as this ghost story and psychological drama, I would call it. And I really enjoy it. I think the performances are strong. I think that the script is really well written. But I don't think you've seen it before. And I know you have thoughts on it. So fire away. I thought I had seen it before because I feel like, you know, it's so well known. Mm -hmm. And as a kid, I had seen a lot of his movies, even though they did get worse and worse. But it looks like The Sixth Sense was his third movie. But the first of basically this horror thriller genre that he created kind of in the early 2000s so I guess in my memory I was mixing this in signs but yeah I don't think I had seen this before but I had obviously heard the I see dead people thing overall I'll say I wasn't a fan because it was too easy to see the twist coming and I don't think I knew that going in but it was easy to put the pieces together so it wasn't spoiled for you but you knew there would be a twist yeah but I guess even putting it like that that is a bit of a spoiler. Right, yeah. Because you're trying to guess what's coming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's if you're looking for it or if you 
know that one's coming, it is really easy to see, I think, especially mm-hmm. because the clues are, I think, pretty obvious. But I will say that I think that what it does really well is that, you know, everything is kind of hidden in plain sight. But when you're not looking for a twist and you're just getting really invested in what is happening to Cole and what he's experiencing, Mm -hmm. you don't really think about at least what has happened right at the beginning, which is kind of crazy to think about of, you know, this traumatic event. You just think, okay, that's something that occurred in Malcolm, Bruce Willis's character's life. But if I can think back to my first time watching it, the only dots I connected there were, okay, this man has been dealing with troubled youth for a really long time. He's this award-winning child psychologist and this traumatic experience that he just went through with his wife, with this old patient who was very mm-hmm. disturbed that broke into his home, what he learns from that maybe moving forward, he's continuing to help these children and hopefully learns some type of lesson from that. I never was thinking like he's dead because he's moving on to the next like case or whatever. So for me, all of the clues, and obviously now we're older too, like back when this came out, it would have been eight. So it's not like I would have processed this in the same way, but like laying out that he wasn't talking to anybody else besides Cole. He couldn't open the red door to the basement. The fact that they never went back to the shooting or showed the aftermath of all of that, it was like, okay, this is all leading up to something. And I think I was also surprised by how early the I See Dead People quote came in the movie. I was like, okay, there's got to be something else. But I think even just as a movie, like it looks professionally done, like it looks like a really well-made movie. It was also just kind of slow for me. Oh. Like the pacing was so slow. I think it's so quick. (laughs) (laughs) I was shocked. Like all of a sudden I was at the end again. Like we were at the big reveal and I was like, okay, we're here. And I was crying. The thing about twists now is that you have directors like Denis Villeneuve and Christopher Nolan and David Fincher who do these twists and they're successful sometimes, but a lot of times like there isn't an emotional payoff to them. Like it's just there mm-hmm. to be a twist. And here it adds so much to the story when you get that reveal. It works and it isn't just there to shock the viewer. It's a meaningful storytelling element. It's not something that's like tacked on for fun to make it more thrilling. It's, and I think that's part of why I really like this script a lot. And I think Bruce Willis also is great in this movie, which I don't say all the time, but I love how he and Cole are helping each other. Cole has this gift and a curse, right, of seeing dead people. And he's able, through Malcolm's guidance, to talk to a character like the Misha Barton ghost to bring closure there to her family and bring justice Mm -hmm. and then of course Cole is able to show Malcolm the truth which truth is another element to the story as well but I like how they exist to help each other and the twist isn't just there. I think the other thing about the twist here I hinted at this at the very beginning of the episode but this twist kind of rocked the world at the time. The Guardian listed it as the best movie twist of all time. The WGA listed it in the I think number 51 in the top 100 screenplays ever written. Most of that is because of how this twist plays out. Like, I know you're a big naysayer, but this film is like really loved by a lot of people because at the time there just weren't a lot of movies like this. And now they're so overdone. I think today, if this movie came out, it would be totally ruined on Twitter. I think of the movies that have twists now, like even if someone doesn't spoil the twist, they'll say, whoa, that was a crazy ending. Didn't see that coming. 
And then you know something big is coming and you're looking for it. It's a great document of the 90s. And even Roger Ebert was really stumped. Like most people did not see the twist coming at all and were completely blindsided, even totally missed the hints because of how bold the story was and how confident of a filmmaker M. Night Shyamalan seemed to be. Yeah, I probably shouldn't have waited so long to see this. I think it's hard to think back to 1999-2000, and it was kind of like how Jaws started this new sensation in blockbusters, and 1999, the early 2000s, really started some new trends in film again. So probably a lot of my hesitation or lack of surprise is because we've gotten so many through the years and bad horror movies and bad twists that I'm not as shocked as maybe I would have been 20 years ago. It is a shame of like when things come out and how it works out when you watch them. But I think most viewers can find like something in it to like. And what did you think the strongest component of the movie was besides Tony? I put you under a lot of stress here. I know. That's not how I wanted this question to be framed. (laughs) (laughs) This is like what Cole says about dead people. Like you don't want to see what's right in front of you. There are some there are some options. <laughs> yeah, there are. Like I think the music is good here. James Newton Howard. An icon. Yeah, I think I'll I'll stick with that. I mean, there's probably some production design too that is good. We're in a lot of enclosed spaces in the movie in the apartments. What elements did you love besides Tony? I think that Haley Joel Osment should have won an Oscar. Michael Caine for the Cider House rules, like, no. Sorry. He has one for Hannah and her sisters. I mean, this child performance is amazing, I think. It has so many layers to it. I know that you probably disagree, but I think he is perfect in this movie. He has such like a an angelic little face and is so cute, but then you're like, this child is super disturbed. What's going mm-hmm. on here? And it catches you off guard. And the way that he delivers his lines in some of those scenes and interacts with the characters is really powerful for a child actor and Mm -hmm. i think that boys never win oscars like if you're thinking of child actors we've had we had this conversation this year about alan kim but i think he does a great job here if not tom cruise in magnolia i would have picked Haley joel osment for this movie and i'm sure for an actor that is around like 10 years old the things that he had to do and see like the other actors on set with half their head burned or you know, a shot to the back of the head or Misha who's throwing up all over the place. I think that would also be a little traumatizing. And the fact that he has to be in this really mature role, like he's basically another adult or a psychologist himself working with Malcolm. And then like later on in the movie in the car scene, having to console his mom. Mm hmm. That's a perfect segue to talking about Tony Collette, who plays Lynn Sear, who is Cole's mother and she is also 25 in this movie oh my god that i I didn't realize yeah she's a baby (laughs) wow what did you think of her performance in this movie well i obviously think she's great the car scene at the end alone was worthy of the nomination the way she breaks down hearing what cole is saying to her about her grandmother i know we'll compare her like mother roles later on but I like her performance here because she plays anxiety so well especially as a single mother I love that you can just kind of picture 
the life that this woman probably has had. Like, you think, okay, she's this young, single mother. You can tell kind of based on the clothes that she's wearing, her lip liner, which is absolutely wild, (laughs) her nails, everything like that. She's kind of been through it. She probably had him really young, and now she does not know how to connect with her son. She's, like, really struggling through this, and she's anxious and... I, I mean, I can't imagine having a child who is experiencing all of this and clearly having a really hard time. I love the scene when she's like telling him about her day and she's exaggerating all of these things that happened to her. I think that's really cute. And I also really love the scene that you're talking about in the car when she says, like, do I make you proud? That, oof, mm-hmm. that really, really gets me. And I think she delivers that perfectly. Very deserving here of an Oscar nomination. And then in the scene in the hospital when she's talking to M. Knight, the doctor, mm-hmm. and they're basically accusing her of abusing Cole, I could feel that rage that she was giving the camera. Yeah. And I wanted her to just go all out on him. The best thing about Tony Collette having this expressive face is that she doesn't need dialogue even to convey mm-hmm. how she's feeling. That scene in particular is really tough. I think even at the beginning when she's like just looking at the pictures in the frame and sees that little light Mm -hmm. next to Cole. And you know, that's like a sign that it's something paranormal there. And you can read so many emotions on her face there. It's a really striking thing about her. And one of my favorite things that she does as an actress. And I think this movie showcases that really well and is such a good companion piece to watch her two mother roles if you're thinking of this and hereditary especially scream queen tony collette and tony's relationship with horror is interesting too i read that she was so moved by the emotional aspect of the story when she read the screenplay that she didn't even realize it was a horror film until after it was released i think that makes sense kind of given what we've talked about just how how much emotions and you know people's feelings about life and death come into play in the story. And that scene we were talking about, about the car, where she's having that conversation with Cole about her mom, that was actually her audition scene and the mm-hmm. scene that drew her in to the movie. It's crazy that that's the audition scene because that is the hardest scene of the film for mm-hmm. her. Yeah. <laughs> So, like, if you can do that, you can do anything. Exactly. It's just, like, a good sign. Okay, you're good. Whatever else we throw at you, you'll be fine. (laughs) But also, how did she not realize it was a horror film when she does this audition scene where she realizes her son can see ghosts? So, I feel like this is also, like, part of the time. It was, like, the 90s. You had Field of Dreams. You had these kind of sappy, sentimental movies about ghosts and about your connections with relatives who have passed away. So she probably thought it was something like that. You know, and children are typically known to be more perceptive of paranormal activity than adults anyway. So it would have been, I think, totally normal to frame it as just a regular drama at the time. Mm -hmm. Another fact about the movie I thought was interesting and I feel like you'll like is that M. Night Shyamalan pitched the film as a cross between The Exorcist and Ordinary People. Wow, that explains why I like it, as I love both of those movies. I think they're both better. I don't think he quite gets there, but um, that's great. I like that. And if Tony wouldn't have been in this movie, Marissa Tomei was also considered for the role of Lynn Sear. I think that could work, but 
I like what Tony brings to the part, mm-hmm. I think, more than how I'm imagining Marissa's performance to be. I do like her a lot, too, though. So I think it would have been good either way. So if you could give this movie one Oscar, would it be for Tony Collette for Best Supporting Actress or would it be for something else? It would definitely be for Tony Collette. This is the easiest one, I think. If you had to give it for something else, or what would it be? If I had to, it would be Haley Joel Osment for the category frauded Best Supporting Actor. (laughs) (laughs) But my easy choice is definitely Tony Collette. What about you? Yeah, I would definitely give it to Tony. Don't make me choose something else. (laughs) You should be a bigger supporter of this movie because it is very rare that horror films get nominated for Best Picture and five other Oscars. Yeah, it was shocking to me that it got six nominations, let alone a picture nomination and director, really. It definitely would have aged better as a Best Picture winner than American Beauty. That's what I'll say about that movie. (laughs) All right, time to move on to Hereditary. Hereditary was wide released in June of 2018, and it made over $80 million on a $10 million budget, making it A24's highest grossing film worldwide. IMDb description here, a grieving family is haunted by tragic and disturbing occurrences. To be honest, that's putting it very lightly. It was directed by Ari Aster. It stars Tony Collette, Alex Wolfe, Ann Dowd, Gabriel Byrne, and more. Tony won Best Actress at the Gotham Awards, and she was also nominated for an Indie Spirit Award and won a handful of critics' prizes. We both love this movie. We've talked about it briefly on our horror movie fantasy draft where it was the number one overall pick let's dive into hereditary we haven't actually really talked about it that much there's just so much i love about this movie i hadn't seen it in a while and then i watched it last night again and even those big moments Mm -hmm. still hit me maybe not as hard as they did but more than i expected them to having seen it so many times and it was fun because you start to notice the smaller details the edits themselves and how it's put together and that Mm -hmm. makes it even more enjoyable for me i really love this movie i think that the performances are strong and while it does feel i think like a millennial rosemary's baby at times i love its odes to previous like classic horror films and psychological thrillers the film opens with an obituary which i right when this movie started, found to be incredibly clever and terrifying in a weird way. It's like it opens immediately with death and sets the tone for the rest of the film that you're about to experience. But it also casts this shadow over the film of, okay, this this woman, Ellen Taper Lee, whose obituary we see, her presence, her life that she had on Earth, and her presence in death hang over this film like... Rebecca does in Rebecca. You never see this person physically interacting with other characters. You never hear her speak, but her presence is so known the entire time. And that is a very, very creepy tactic and worked really well on me when I watched it. Definitely with that obituary leading into the funeral and introducing the family, you know there's just so much going on under the surface Mm -hmm. and you're waiting for things to be peeled back. And I think that's part of the fun because you know it's going to be bad, but you don't realize how bad it is until it happens. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And you don't know like why it's going to be bad, like who, because I think that at first it is really odd that Tony Collette's character 
Annie Graham, who plays Ellen Taperley's the woman who's passed away, her daughter, she's giving this eulogy and it is incredibly clipped. It's very odd. And you just know this woman had an incredibly fraught relationship with her mother. But her daughter, who is like the typical like creepy kid in a horror movie, and Ari Aster clearly knows like everything that comes with that. She's eating this chocolate bar in the weirdest way. (laughs) (laughs) At a funeral. At a funeral. And you're just like, what is up with this kid? This is going to be bad. (laughs) She's in the same outfit the entire movie. I think the next time we see her, she's cutting a pigeon's head off its dead body. Every time I see a dead bird, which I'm making it sound like it's a lot. It's really not frequently. (laughs) But if I see one like on the sidewalk, the first thing that I think of is Charlie Graham. Like, where is she? She's going to cut the head off of this bird. <laughs> but then between those moments, Annie is tucking her in bed and they're talking about the grandma and Charlie says she wanted me to be a boy. So again, it's that like little trail that we have to follow mm-hmm. to put all these clues together. What I think is really interesting about this family and about how Ari Aster starts this movie in kind of a slow burn fashion is that I think this film is more like Ordinary People than The Sixth Sense is. And Ari Aster has referenced that film as being influential to him for this movie too. Because he saw it as a family drama that slowly curdled into a nightmare. And he shows how grief is relatable. He leaves a lot of clues behind as to how they felt about this woman, but also the relief that sometimes comes after death. And I think one of the scariest parts of the movie is when Annie sees her mother's ghost in her workroom. It's terrifying. And dissimilar to these other types of movies that we've talked about where ghosts can be comforting or ghosts can be sentimental, the Colin Stetson score here and just the way that she's in the shadows lets you know, okay, this is not a paranormal encounter that we want. This is something bad. This mother had a bad relationship with her daughter. And it's also in the way we see all of the ghosts like creepily smiling to these characters when they're seen. So then I think our first big monologue scene with Tony comes when she's in the support group Mm -hmm. and she just lets her emotions go. And there's this mix of rage and sadness that she really lets out. And I think this is when I knew, first off, that Tony was going to be the centerpiece of the movie. Yeah, this is when you start to really put everything together that not only do we realize how difficult Annie's life was because her mom had DID and dementia, but also Ari Aster gives us more clues through this monologue to what is happening with this family and with their history. Annie mentions that her dad died when she was a baby from starvation because he had psychotic depression and starved himself. She also had an older brother who was schizophrenic and he hanged himself and blamed her for it, but more specifically of putting people inside him, which we will come back to what that means. (laughs) And to me, she's saying all of this, but she seems like a normal character. Like Mm -hmm. she doesn't, at least at this point, exude any form of psychosis or any of these things that she's listing of her family right so it's like why is there a disconnect so far or like we're waiting for this to come out right in this moment too she reveals that she didn't let her near peter her son and i just felt really badly for this woman 
I wasn't scared. I was just very overwhelmed by how someone could have this difficult of a life so far. If I could ask Ari Aster one question, this has plagued me for years since I watched this movie. I'm curious because we know that Gabriel Byrne, who plays Steve, her husband, is significantly older than her, I would say. And also we know is a psychiatrist. I would love to know, did they meet in therapy? Was he her therapist at one point? And is that why he's able to like help her through all of this? It's very interesting to me. I just want to know. And the interesting connection here is that Tony's character on the United States of Terra had DID as well. So it's fun to think back to that show, which I also really loved and was sad that it only ran for three seasons. But the way she transitions through characters, she brings back in Hereditary, which again just speaks to her acting and her abilities to change so fluidly and so quickly. It's quite remarkable what she does, because also here she meets Ann Dowd at this support group. And whenever Ann Dowd is around, it's trouble, usually, and (laughs) that's no exception here, but we don't necessarily know that right away. She just seems to be this woman who wants to help her and Mm -hmm. wants to make her feel better. But what I love about what Ari Aster does here is that In these types of situations, there are these types of people who prey on other people's grief, who want to take them in and kind of live vicariously through them and take advantage of them. And I think that that is what this Anne Dowd character is doing. She is very familiar, but also becomes incredibly frightening as it goes on. Yeah, when Hereditary came out in 2018, my history of knowing Anne Dowd was really her in The Leftovers and in The Handmaid's Tale. And both of her characters are evil. Mm -hmm. So I was really hesitant to trust this overly happy, friendly woman. But that also adds to the anxiety of the movie of you're waiting for something to happen. Mm -hmm. And there's so much intensity being built through the dialogue and between the characters. And thinking about what we know about this family kind of up to this point, we know that Annie is sneaking away, going to these support group meetings, saying she's going to the movies. Steve finds out that Ellen's grave has been desecrated, but doesn't tell Annie. He keeps it to himself. We know that Charlie is cutting the heads off of birds and is a pretty weird kid. (laughs) And we know that Peter, from his high school class, is just kind of your like typical high school stoner kid. But an important Mm -hmm. thing that we learn here in his class is about the concept of fate and the idea of predestination, that you can't control what's coming for you. It's a little hint, Mm -hmm. I think, that works really well. It's a little obvious, but a cool detail in the script that they included. And all of these things lead up to this party where Annie basically forces Peter to take Charlie to Mm -hmm. a party that he wants to go to because he wants to talk to this girl and get high with his friends. And I think on the way to the party, there's a shot of this telephone pole with the symbol on it again from Mm -hmm. the necklace. And I think the opening shot of the party is somebody chopping up walnuts, which my first time around, I didn't connect until Charlie started wheezing. And then I think from that point on, once she goes and finds Peter, once they have to leave the party, and then they're driving, that's when it gets really crazy. Crazy is a word for it. The way Ari Aster shoots, like the nuts being chopped, and all the tension is just mm-hmm. 
ratcheting up. You feel so uncomfortable for Charlie, who's just alone at this party and does not want to be there. And then is just suffering. When Peter swerves and her head hits that pole and you realize what happens, I will never have that theatrical experience replicated. There were screams. There were walkouts. Yeah, this is one moment that I wish I could experience over again. (laughs) I would say this and Parasite are my like top two shocked moments watching a movie because you're sitting there basically like Peter, just totally awestruck. You don't know what to do. You can't move. You can't look in the mirror to see if it actually happened because you know it happened. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do you move on from this? You really can't. And it's almost like Peter knows that because he just drives away. And the way the scene just slowly transitions into the next morning. Mm-hmm. And it's this long take on Peter's face in bed. You can hear Annie leaving the house and getting to the car. And mm-hmm. those screams are bone chilling. It's another moment for me where I was like, give it to Tony. The guttural screams and the I just want to die over and over and over again oh my god and then when they cut to her head with the flies on it who does that (laughs) it was me expecting these really sharp shrieks but you get this deep like you said guttural sound it totally throws you off the editing here is just phenomenal (laughs) Even talking about it, I know, it's like, so much. I have goosebumps like thinking about this whole moment. And what it does that's so brilliant is it's like Psycho. It's Janet Lee. You spend, if you've watched horror movies, you spend the first half of it thinking that this is going to be about Charlie. That Charlie is this demon child. That she's this conduit for whatever her grandma is up to. And mm-hmm. that's not the case. she's gone so now we're here with peter and annie and this family that is collapsing and you see i think the differences in grief when it's her mother who she was not close with had a very troubled relationship with and her daughter who was 13 and died in that way it's just and it's interesting with the way peter deals with grief because right after this they show him under the bleachers getting high with his friends during school and he feels like his throat is starting to close up again so he's connecting that experience from the party to charlie's death and so he feels like how she felt that night so i like how they focus on how each character is dealing with this moment Mm -hmm. and how it's affecting them i like that scene because it could be your brain responding to what you just did unintentionally obviously like he's dealing with grief he's processing it and his brain could be responding by having him mimic those symptoms like that is definitely something that could happen to someone in real life but at the same time with it being a horror movie you also think okay this could be something supernatural they could now be connected in this way what is the reason for this and i like how he plays on those things that are that can be realistic but also that can be supernatural I think in one of the best scenes of the movie, the dinner scene, this is where everything really just blows up and you get, I think, the best scene from Tony Collette in the movie. I think we could both probably do a dramatic reading of this. We're not going to, but there's so many great lines. This has to be probably my favorite monologue of the past five years. 
I remember doing a BuzzFeed quiz on filling in the blanks of this monologue. And I can only imagine the amount of TikToks of people reciting this or doing like the background video kind of thing. I could never do this justice. So yeah, we are not doing this, but it's my favorite scene to watch. Do you have a favorite line from it off the top of your head? Oh my God. It's like every single thing, but that effing face on your face is my favorite. (laughs) I love when she says, don't you swear at me, you little shit. You don't ever raise your voice at me. I am your mother. It's so good. And also just so painful because this family is just going through it. And you see Peter when he says, and what about you, mom? And this is when her face really starts contorting. And then we're back to Ann Dowd. (laughs) So, you know, Annie, she needs comfort. And she runs into her in the parking lot in this absolutely hysterical moment, I think, where Ann Dowd starts waving her arms. (laughs) (laughs) yelling Annie (laughs) and that's just you just always want to avoid people like that at the grocery store and any kind of parking lot (laughs) but of course and out's character Joan senses her grief knows she needs help and then we get one of the one of my least favorite least favorite meaning that it just terrifies me trademarks of horror movies a seance if you've watched horror movies before you know that nothing good can come from a seance Please do not do one in your real life. It's my PSA to everyone. And what shocked me about this the first time and why I love to revisit Hereditary is that usually in scary movies, somebody experiencing something supernatural and trying to prove that to somebody else, they're like, oh, come, come. Mm -hmm. But then it's gone or it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. And every time they do that in this movie, it's actually happening. So the seance is real, the cup moves, Louis ends up writing with the chalk, and it's terrifying. So then we're just waiting on Annie wanting to prove this to her family, and mm-hmm. then obviously that terrifies Peter mostly, too. Right. And in this scene, what I also love about it is that Annie is so scared, and what mm-hmm. Anne Dowd is doing here as Joan, she looks like she is channeling something evil here I think on rewatch but also she looks like she is she's praying she is in celebration she's proud she's experiencing all these emotions as well you just see her as this woman who I think seems very powerful there and that is troubling Mm -hmm. for what's to come obviously even though at first Joan tells her like you can't do this without a medium unless you are one She gives her the instructions anyway on how to do it herself. (laughs) And she gives her, of course, another sign from horror movies that we know to stay away from that it features language that we do not recognize, similar to Latin. (laughs) (laughs) But we get shades of the omen here. We get shades of the exorcist and a black candle. Black candles, no good. So the first time that Annie goes to Joan's house, she went before they did the seance and she confesses to Joan that she's a sleepwalker. And one time she woke up to find Peter covered in paint thinner. But then after the seance that she's had with Joan, we have a moment where we're in Peter's bedroom. So Peter wakes up and Mm -hmm. Annie's standing there. We know she's been sleepwalking based on this story, but another audible gasp moment in my theater was when Annie says to Peter, I never wanted to be your mother. Yeah. And her acting here of how she delivers that 
is also amazing because mm-hmm. it's almost like it wasn't her speaking, but then she immediately regrets saying it. She regrets saying it, but then all of a sudden you see that Peter and Annie are both covered in paint thinner. Terrifying. So then you wonder, you're like, okay, is this, like, she's repeating this behavior that she talked about before. Is this a dream? Completely terrifying. And also another moment to showcase Tony Collette's acting as this woman, Annie, who is going completely mad. And what's so cool about this scene is that they're fighting Peter and Annie, but there's an edit and then they're all covered. Yes. There's no lead into it. And then they just cry and this fire engulfs them both and she wakes up. So then I think we see things just they're rapidly deteriorating with this family. Annie seems to be getting more and more unhinged. She's looking for answers, which I think any parent who loses a child that way would be, which makes it really sad, even though you kind of hate this character at the same time for how she treats her son and what she said about him. And of course, because anyone in a horror movie who learns about a seance what she does is she decides to perform one on her own and you start hearing her say words like paymon from the bathroom and then she decides to involve the rest of her family in the seance this features another great scene from tony where she essentially is possessed for a quick minute by charlie and starts speaking as charlie to her family and before we hear her speaking We get this like guttural moan. And one, I wonder if she was making this sound. And two, I really like how they overlay her voice with Charlie's voice. Mm -hmm. I think it's just them two, but it adds to the eeriness and the shock on her face. Because then when she's doused with water again, she comes out of everything and has no idea of what's been happening. She does so much in these scenes and she's so convincing as a possessed character, which I cannot imagine how hard that must be. And she thinks she's getting closer to being reunited with Charlie. In some ways, she is right. But all of the choices that she's making, and whether or not you view them as choices, are another thing altogether with this movie. It's just setting you up for the end. And I would say that the last 30 minutes of this movie are some of the most visceral painful moments to watch in a movie that I've ever experienced. I really love also how the pacing shifts, how it feels like this slow burn for a while. You're interested in everything that's happening and there are little nuggets and little scenes where the tension builds and something horrifying will happen, but it isn't until the end where things just, you know, the doors come off the hinges and we realize what we're dealing with here. And there is that moment that you get where you realize when she goes through her mom's stuff and she sees Mm -hmm. like, okay, this woman, not only was she in a cult, she was Paymon's bride. (laughs) She was a leader. (laughs) And of course, she figures out everything that she's been doing. And we get, I think, important exposition in the reveal. I like pieces of information like that and seeing it all come together. Throughout the movie, I felt always like, These characters aren't easy to identify with at all, but Peter is the most relatable, I think, to the audience. I would Mm -hmm. say Peter and then Steve. So when things start to go south for Peter, you feel terribly, and also you have hope for him, but at the same time, you know, based on the story, that it's not going to end well for him at all. Do you remember seeing her up in the ceiling in the corner? (laughs) 
in realizing that. So I remember her in the ceiling towards the end. I think when he's downstairs and then she starts to chase him and they go upstairs. But I don't think I remember seeing her in his bedroom in the corner because I noticed that this time. And then she's like swimming away midair. Ooh, yeah. Which is so creepy. (laughs) So the funny part about this is that, right, he has this absolutely horrifying day at school where Ann Dowd is chanting at him across the way and he becomes possessed, basically, (laughs) and has to be taken home from school. And he wakes up in his bedroom. And when this happened in the movie theater, I didn't see her up in the corner right away. But the best part of seeing this in a crowded theater, like when it came out, was that other people around you were noticing. (laughs) And people were pointing up at the screen and being like, what? Look at her. There she is. Like freaking out in my theater. And I just remember then seeing her. And ooh, that part was just, I was like, mm-hmm. absolutely not. And I think it's fun because we've seen characters in shadows throughout the movie. We had the grandma, we had Charlie, and we've had Annie a few times. Mm-hmm. And then finally, when... Peter is downstairs, we see her in the corner and she runs out into the light. And that's the first time I think anyone has done that. Mm -hmm. And then the music really ratchets up and it's so intense as she is chasing him up the stairs into the bedroom and he thinks he's safe, but it obviously just keeps going. For me, worse than Charlie's head coming off when it hits the pole is when Peter is chased up to the attic and we hear these horrible, horrible noises of like Mm -hmm. blood, like gurgling basically. And we look up and see Tony Collette sawing her own head off with a piano wire. Yeah, just completely disturbing because it doesn't look fake at all. I think that would just immediately take me out Uh if it had seemed like a dummy head or something at first but the pacing of her sawing back and forth and then it slowly crescendos after peter had jumped out the window and seen the other naked ghosts (laughs) hiding in the corner and then you just hear the body or the head fall and our girl wore a prosthetic neck and sawed her own head off which is incredible (laughs) we love that she did that What makes this movie, I think, genuinely evil and why I also love Mm -hmm. it at the same time is that after I watched this movie, it did not leave my head for weeks. It was the only thing I could think about. And I know I've talked before that I search for movies that I have experiences with like that where I can't stop thinking Mm -hmm. about it and I want to solve the riddles and analyze it. But this was one where I would have been thrilled to not think about it for an hour when I would go to bed at night. But I would love it anyway. And I I went to see it multiple times in theaters even because I loved it so much, even though it left me with an absolutely awful feeling at the end. I wonder if there were viewers who knew about the spiritualism and about Payman because I had no clue even before when she finds the doormats and looks through the books and finds these illustrations. And that's when we first see the name Payman. Uh Like that still didn't mean anything to me. And then in the end, when Joan is reading this statement, basically of who Peter has become Mm -hmm. and who Payman is, that's when you realize the depth of why everything needed to happen, how it happened throughout the movie Mm -hmm. so that this could happen. That was just the final moment for me. 
where it came full circle. Mm -hmm. I was fully in love with this movie. Yeah. I didn't know specifically about Payman and this type of religious slash satanic cult. Historically, I did look it up after the movie, of course, and like had to read all about it. But Mm -hmm. going to a Catholic school growing up and also watching a lot of those horror movies about demons and devils and when Christianity is intertwined with those, the connection to the Trinity was something that I really loved in this movie and that made it that much more disturbing of, you know, when you see the headless Charlie, Ellen, Annie there bowing down, that is so, so disturbing. And I think anytime you know that evil wins, this is like a superhero story for Ellen Taper Lee. Like she got what she wanted here. And Mm -hmm. the rest of this family, they were all pawns in it. In a similar way, what I love too is how... Annie's career is she's making these miniatures. She's making a small version of their house and she, in a really scary way, stages the accident again and makes a miniature of that. And that's her life's work. And you can also read that as, you know, this whole family, they're all pawns and other forces are manipulating them to do what they want. In the same way, we are the pawns to Ari Aster and his vision and what he's doing to us. And I love how that works and goes together. I love how they use these models. One of the first shots of the movie is a zoom into Peter's room. Mm -hmm. And then it transitions from the model to the actual people and that was fascinating i also love how ari Aster does this in his movies where he ends with a song that is so unlike the movie but makes you feel yes. like, really scared and creeped out and he ends this one with both sides now by judy collins which is so frightening just hearing that at the end you're like i can't do this what other movie is that from i feel like it's some emma thompson movie like love actually oh, or something it is in love actually Oh, that is the sad song. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's a different version. Right. That's a, the Joni Mitchell version. This one's like a wistful kind of version. And I like how it, it's about like simplicity mm-hmm. and childhood, ice cream castles in the air. That is not what this movie was. However, it was a sort of coming of age tale if you think about it. <laughs> Much like the song. <laughs> okay. So that was a very deep dive into Hereditary. What do you think the strongest components of the movie are besides Tony Collette's performance. I love the music, which we've talked about a little bit. Colin Stetson, the composer, had said that they wanted the music to feel like another character in the movie. And I also really love the cinematography. So like how the camera moves and zooms into the models and captures the house inside and outside and how everything moves. It puts you in the perspective of different characters. And I think that's What makes this special, too, is you start to see things from Annie's perspective, but also Peter Mm -hmm. and Charlie for being an outcast at times. And I think that adds to the uneasiness, but also keeps the viewer so interested in, like, what is being done. Definitely. So this cinematographer, Pavel Pogorzelski, I might be butchering that, hopefully not, but I love how he captures light. So sometimes it'll be like a light switch, go from light to dark or dark to light. But then also mm-hmm. there's a moment that I can't describe very well because I'm not sure exactly what how he's doing this, but it's some sort of spirit. And you see this light flash across the screen or kind of go up the wall. That is so cool mm-hmm. when he does that. I mm-hmm. love that. So what part did you like besides Tony? 
There are so many things that I really love. I also really love the music. I love the editing. This was edited by Jennifer Lame, who also did Marriage Story and Tenet recently. I think the pacing of this works really well. I think there are some really neat tricks in it, but also it's not, it's more of an editing style that I like. And then what did you, I know we've talked a lot about Tony's performance, like through our discussion of it, but I think in comparison maybe to The Sixth Sense or just any of her other roles, what do you think of this one here? I think this has to be my favorite because I think she is fully in control of her character here. I think it takes a really mature person and seasoned actor to kind of switch between all of these different characters that she's even playing in the same moment. Yeah, she has to be grieving, be depressed, have resentment for her son. She is possessed, like cries, screams. She does everything here. And Mm -hmm. it isn't everything in a most acting sense. It's just great acting. And when Mm -hmm. I think about her in this movie, this was just such an exhausting performance to me. It really like took everything out of me watching her go through this, but in the best, best way. I loved experiencing this movie like through her as the main character. And I cannot imagine anyone else in this role. I'm not sure I could either, or I don't know if it would have been as good. Mm-hmm. And much like The Sixth Sense, I read that she told her agent she didn't want to do any more heavy like horror films but she really loved the hereditary script since she said she couldn't turn it down. But she's also done Krampus and Fright Night. So it's not like she strays from horror. <laughs> she loves it. She can't stay away. <laughs> it's understandable. I think this is definitely the darkest of anything she's ever done. Mm-hmm. So if she doesn't return to this like that, I would understand. Yeah. Because Krampus especially is way more campy, way more over the top, very different than this. And seeing her even in Knives Out after this was so jarring <laughs> to hear her just like playing this like vapid kind of flip of a woman talking about reading a tweet. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I read that I thought was interesting was that the producer said that so Gabriel Byrne and Alex Wolf knew each other. They'd worked together already. And Alex knew Millie Shapiro, who played Charlie, from school. So Tony Collette was oh, wow. the outsider in the situation. They knew each other, and she was just kind of going into it blind, which completely mirrors how Annie felt in her own family, that they were closer, they understood mm. each other more, and that she was the outsider. But it's funny that the connection that she does have is that her and Alex Wolf share the same birthday. She also mentioned that, like, while the film was really heavy, she had to exercise a lot to just, like, keep up with everything. She needed to really be moving around, taking care of her mental health. But she also said that the hair and makeup team were really kind and would always, like, make her laugh at the end of a really bad day. And she wanted to really keep this character at a distance. So she said she didn't really have trouble, like, leaving this character at the door, which... Hmm. I feel like this character would be traumatizing to play and then like have that in your head. It'd be hard to leave at work at the end of the day. Totally. So if you could give this movie one Oscar, would it be for Toni Collette in Best Actress? Absolutely. One of the greatest Oscar snubs of our time (laughs) is her not getting a nomination here. What about you? Yeah, I feel the same exact way. I'm sorry, but... I would have totally nominated Tony over Yalitza or Paricio. Same. Yalitza would have been my fifth that year. And then if you could give this movie one Oscar, 
that wasn't Tony Collette for Best Actress, what would you give it? I know I said cinematography and music. I think they're close. I would give it to editing. I think partly because <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody won, and that's just a joke. Yes, I have the exact same answer. <laughs> Best editing over Bohemian Rhapsody. I would have given Ari Aster a nomination, too. Um, Mm -hmm. Alfonso would be hard to beat there, but I think he deserved a nomination, especially since this was his first feature. I mean, we know you would have nominated him over Adam McKay. (laughs) Yeah, I realized after our early Oscar predictions that Don't Look Up was left out from us, and I can say that was on purpose for me. I'm doing some wishful thinking here. Yeah, I it wasn't left out. I considered it, but I don't know what that movie's going to be like. I know. I feel like it's going to be more fun based on its subject matter. So I was like, mm. but the Academy does love him. So Tony had done an interview with Cinema Blend, and she talked about what Hereditary and The Sixth Sense have in common, which I think is great for this pod. So I just want to read a little quote that she said. I guess there are some comparisons to The Sixth Sense in terms of being quite naturalistic and a kind of classic family drama where something else is introduced. I like the fact that I'm playing mothers in both films, and particularly in this film, there's such an expectation of what a mother should be like, and this turns that entirely on its head, both with my character and my mother's character, which I'm not saying everyone's like this, but it is much more realistic. It's not always a rosy experience for women. It's a complicated time in one's life and a complicated role to assume with a lot of responsibility and too many expectations, and it's such an individual experience. And you mentioned at the end of the last pod that the theme that connects these two movies is motherhood. So do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so what she's talking about here is so true, and I love seeing complicated mothers on screen. You know, we talked about Ordinary People earlier, Mary Tyler Moore in that movie, definitely a complicated mother, and I like when directors and actresses are able to portray motherhood in really unique and realistic ways, but also motherhood in horror movies is really interesting to think about. I mean, you could we could do a whole podcast series on women in horror and final girls and everything like that and how they've been used over the decades. But I think that here, Tony playing two very different types of mothers in horror mm-hmm. movies and her ability to connect with the audience, whether she's playing a mother who really loves her son or a mother who is kind of repelled by her son just shows her power as an actress even more in making us think about what motherhood means and how this role in life that women have to take on, how challenging that is. How, of course, it can bring so much joy, but also can bring a lot of of elements that can connect to a horror movie, that's for sure. I think it's safe to say that we love Toni Collette in both of these movies. She really doesn't miss, but I think these two movies in particular, not just because of her work discussing and demonstrating the differences and the struggles and challenges of motherhood, but really showing her full range of abilities as a performer. If you're interested in checking out Toni Collette's work, I think these two are essential viewing and It's also interesting to think about why she didn't get nominated for an Oscar for Hereditary, but she Mm -hmm. did for The Sixth Sense. I think The Sixth Sense 
plays like an easy horror movie. So maybe that's why the Academy Mm -hmm. loved it so much too. So I can kind of see it. I don't understand it. When I think of acting, this role is everything. Mm -hmm. Like even though she's playing in the same genre here, we see so much range and depth in these roles. Yeah. I mean, I think there are a couple of reasons for it, right? The Sixth Sense was such a box office smash that they couldn't mm-hmm. ignore it. And it was nominated for so many other things. Whereas Hereditary, while successful, was an indie film by a brand new director. And I think also the Academy has trouble highlighting and spotlighting women who are in more complicated or villainous types of roles. And, you know, Tony Collette is a great mother in the sixth sense and here she's not (laughs) (laughs) so if you want to go watch these movies or if you want to watch them again the sixth sense is currently on prime and hereditary is on canopy we hope that you enjoyed this new type of episode from us today if you liked this if you have a suggestion for another actress that we should spotlight who's been nominated for an oscar before definitely let us know Feel free to submit your suggestions to us on Twitter and Instagram at Oscar Wilde Pod or send us an email, OscarWildePod at gmail.com. So next time on Oscar Wilde, we'll be doing an Oscar Rewind based on all of the polls that we did on Twitter and Instagram. We came to no conclusion. It was a split decision <laughs> 50-50 between 1964 and 1967. So based on what we wanted to cover, we're doing 1964 and I'm sure we'll get to 1967 at some point in the future. That year, the winner for Best Picture was My Fair Lady, and the other nominees were Beckett, Dr. Strangelove, Mary Poppins, and Zorba the Greek. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.